Raise your hand if you would consider yourself a runner. Okay? In this group, I, I figured we would have a good number. I think of a couple of individuals, and I think of running. One of them is our own Daniel Crumpacker. I don't know if he's here today or not, but um, back in June, he ran a marathon in California. And then on the 4th of July, he ran Mount Marathon. And then last night, or yesterday, he ran the Crow Creek Pass Run. That's impressive. My own bride, Becky, uh, she is somebody who gets great joy uh, from the Lord when she runs. She's participated in several of the women's events here. She's got a whole bunch of those finisher t-shirts and fancy patches, etc. <sighs> Running doesn't particularly appeal to me, however. <laughs> if somebody asks me, Alec, do you run? I'm like, only when chased. Or the, my other favorite is run. Running is just a sign of bad planning. <laughs> However, the Bible over and over again uses the running analogy as a metaphor to drive home the point that our lives are in many ways like running a race, with, of course, heaven being the proverbial finish line. For example, many of you probably remember Paul's famous words in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And in Galatians 2.2, 2, he says, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. And later on in that same book, in chapter 5, verse 7, he says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep from you from obeying the truth? So the unknown author of Hebrews, which is the book that we're in right now in our series, toward the end of today's passage, summarizes the point of chapter 11 when he says, and let us run the race. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So God in his wisdom has provided us with this simple yet powerful analogy that can truly help us keep perspective through the ups and downs of our lives as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, all analogies fall apart at some point, but this one stands the test of time because there are so many similarities. And one of the main ideas is that there's a start and a finish, right? And our time is measured very carefully. Now, it can be short and intense. It can be long and tiresome. It can be exhilarating and exhausting. You got to keep your head up. You got to pick yourself up when you fall. And you got to keep your eyes on the prize at the finish line. So am I talking about running a race? Or am I talking about the life of faith? Yes. Both. Our passage today is sometimes called the Faith Hall of Fame. It is a lengthy passage with lots of examples of faithfulness, a few of which we will highlight today. The main point of the message is that, by faith, multiple people in the Old Testament and in the early church were able to do great things and withstand major challenges, maintaining their belief in God to the very end, regardless of their circumstances. Reading it is like visiting a sports museum and seeing displays of those who were legendary in their abilities and accomplishments. We can take great encouragement from our forerunners in the faith as we continue down our own individual paths. So what can we expect to learn about faith in today's passage? 
First of all, we'll get a biblical definition of faith, which is very important because the word is often misused, sometimes by certain corners of the church and certainly by society at large nowadays. Next, we'll discuss what our faith is built on, what faith does, and where it comes from. So, what is faith? If you have your bulletin, there's a little opportunity to fill in the lines here. This is the first spot, and that is, faith is the certainty of our hopes in things yet unseen. So let's go to the text. You'll recognize the next three verses. Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. True biblical faith, faith excuse me, always emphasizes the object of our faith, which is God the creator of all. It is not about faith in ourselves or our potential or even the pooled potential of humanity at its very best. It's not about the power of positive thinking or some kind of nebulous faith in faith. It is about the triune God himself as he has revealed himself and the general revelation of creation and the specific revelation of the Holy Bible. As the author writes in verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The hope that we profess as Christians is not vague, blind, or untested. Rather, it is specific, informed, and thoroughly tested. And it is built on two primary pillars or aspects of God. What is faith built on? Faith is built on the character of God. We learn early on in the Bible that God is good. We see that in creation. And in the immediate aftermath of the fall, when he sacrifices animals to provide clothing to Adam and Eve, providing a covering for them, despite their rebellion against him. We see it when he reveals himself to Abraham and says, I am your shield, your very great reward. Later, in Exodus, <clears throat> the Lord reveals himself to Moses as the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. These acts and these kind of statements reveal the character of God that God claimed for himself, and many took him at his word. His renown and his trustworthiness only expanded every time a prophecy came true and every time that he made a promise that was fulfilled. So we can look to the past as a guide to trust in the character of God. The second pillar that our faith is built on is the promises of God. Now, although God made many great promises to the world in general, such as the covenantal rainbow uh, after the flood, or the promises to a nation like Israel about the promised land flowing with milk and honey, 
or promises to individuals about their descendants like Abraham, there were three primary ones, three primary promises made by God that remained unfulfilled at the end of the Old Testament. First, they were still looking for the seed of the woman, that is, a man, who was prophesied to someday come and crush the head of the serpent, that is, to defeat Satan. Next, Moses revealed, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. And the last major promise was made to King David when he said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, your throne will be established forever. So throughout the Old Testament, everybody was waiting to see who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And after Moses, everyone was waiting to see who is going to be this great prophet. And after David's kingdom fell, everyone said, what happened to that promise about that kingdom? And you know what's awesome? Is that they all come true in Jesus Christ. In fact, all promises find their all promises of God find their fulfillment ultimately in Jesus Christ. Jesus actually fulfilled 330 Old Testament prophecies. This is a tested faith. So our faith is justifiably based on both the character and the promises of God. Now, if you think about this, if you're a follower of Christ today, we have more evidence of God's good character because of the fulfilled promises than the heroes of the faith ever had. We only have a handful of promises that we're still waiting to come to pass. We want Jesus to return. We're looking forward to his millennial reign on earth and peace on earth. And of course, our eternal home in Jerusalem. But we have a lot to bank on. So, Two major pillars of our faith are the character and promises of God. But what does faith do? The first thing that faith does is it propels. It's like a propulsion system, an engine. I want to talk to you now directly from the text of Hebrews 11. Um, We're going to discuss Abraham as one of the major examples. But if I only read the text in Hebrews then um, this is really important. If I only read the text directly out of Hebrews, there is some context that's not explained. And if you read this, you might not understand exactly what's going on. So I'll give you a little background on Abraham. Abraham was called by God to leave his country and his family, travel a long distance, and then he kept on hearing things from God, including one which was, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sea on the seashore, or the sand on the seashore. And Abraham believed God, even though it seemed unlikely, and that was credited to him as righteousness, which is a great lesson in itself. Eventually, he got old, his wife got old, and they were wondering how they were going to have these many descendants, and they ended up having a son. That son came as a miracle. It was very, very rare for somebody that old to have a kid. Then God said, I'm going to have you go ahead and sacrifice your son on this altar. And Abraham didn't question God. He believed in God. He trusted in God. And he raised the flint knife to kill his one biological son. And God stopped him. And that's the context you need. (laughs) So going to the text of Hebrews now, in verse 17. 
By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And what's really cool about this promise is that if you look to Galatians 3.29, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This church, look around you, we are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. The worldwide church, billions of people with faith in Christ. In what area of life is God maybe trusting you to do something? The next major um, character in the faith of the fame that I want to highlight is our man Moses. And this one just needs a little bit of um, context as well. The idea behind this is that Moses was a Hebrew, and his parents were Hebrews. They were in Egypt, and they were born under an edict that all the Hebrew children were going to be slaughtered by Pharaoh, and so they were worried about his safety, and so they put him into a reed basket and put him into the Nile River, and he floated on down, and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted her, adopted him, and took care of him. So Moses was raised in the royal household, basically the most powerful people on earth. So, Going back to Hebrews in verse 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ of greater as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Before I go any further, the thing that you might notice about Abraham is that God provided the lamb for Abraham to sacrifice in place of his son which is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And with Moses, Moses was told by God, slaughter a lamb and spread the blood on the door frames of your homes so that the angel of death will pass over the Hebrews. And that's another foreshadowing of Jesus. So people of faith trusted in God and God used them and gave the whole world images of Jesus. It's awesome. Now, the third group that I want to, I say group because it's really just a collection of people. In verse 32 through 35 is a group of many individuals. And I'll just read it directly from the text. People who were propelled to do great things through faith. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, 
and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. We are members of that same church. So what amazing things might you accomplish? Through faith. For his glory. In the face of great personal challenges. Okay, we're transitioning now. This is from, from faith propels, don't miss this, to faith endures. Because it's right in the middle of the same verse that the subject totally changes. In verse 35, we read on. There were others who were tortured. You almost want to see a however there, right? Refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, the suffering detailed in verses 35 through 38 is not tied to any particular individual, although it is clear that the writer is making reference to actual events that faithful, of, of faithful individuals that the audience would have recognized. For instance, although scripture, our scripture is silent on it, uh, tradition was that the prophet Isaiah was sawed in half by the evil king Manasseh. So while there is some speculation about who specifically is being spoken about here, it doesn't matter, because it's always a valid task to consider the suffering of any and all of God's people, whether that was centuries ago or whether it was yesterday. So even if the author meant other, other individuals, let's look at some who certainly fit the bill as faithful servants who endured gruesome treatment in the cause of Christ. And the first one that comes to mind when I think of stoning is Stephen, and this, his story is in the book of Acts. Stephen was a brave new convert to the faith who challenged the Jewish leaders in basically a courtroom-type setting after Jesus had already returned to heaven with a lengthy discourse from the scriptures on Jesus being the long-awaited Messiah. He shared the gospel bravely with the full understanding that he was risking his life by doing so. And as we read in Acts 7, 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin, or ruling council, heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Mistreated. The other person that you might have thought of in that list of people who are suffering and all those strange characteristics like living in fur and in the desert and in holes was John the Baptist, who was killed by the sword. 
Now, John the Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus. He was preaching repentance out in the desert and having people baptized, and repentance of sin specifically, which is never a popular thing to preach on. And he also specifically identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, which was heresy to the Jews. So as we read in Mark 6, verses 21 through 28, here's a story of what happened to John. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, King Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask for me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Mistreated. Both of these great men were treated callously by those who considered themselves God's people. And even though they considered themselves God's people, they felt justified in murdering those who peacefully proclaimed the new covenant that had been predicted and prophesied by their shared prophets. Now, the audience of this ancient sermon is Jewish converts to Christianity. So those who heard this sermon or the recipients of this letter would have been well acquainted with these heroes and martyrs and their exemplary examples of faithfulness. But how did these Jewish converts become Christians in the first place? They already had faith in God. How did they come to Christ? And the answer is is that they were called by Jesus, each individually, to the new covenant that entrusted their entire lives and their eternal salvation to his perfect life and sacrificial death. They no longer trusted in themselves or their righteousness. So, the final question, I guess, that you see in your notes or in this message is, where does faith come from? And the summary answer is, faith is birthed and matured in Jesus Christ. Reading directly from Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is our model of faith. Although he was fully God, he was also fully human. And by accepting many of the limitations of humanity, in the human side of his experience, he believed in things unseen, 
as evidenced by his prolific prayer life. You can't go 15 verses in the New Testament without seeing Jesus stopping to pray. He trusted in the character and the promises of God, his Father. His trust propelled him to great acts. His, his trust and his faith allowed him to endure legendary suffering. And he had the power to resurrect from the dead to eternal life. And thanks to him, so do we. That's a promise. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I love you. You are so good to us. I pray that today the seeds that were planted will turn into great trees that bear much fruit in your appointed seasons. In Jesus' name, amen.